All right, all right. Welcome to episode 19 of the Lies Between Us show. This is Roger Ray Bird, and I have with me today my co-host for episode 19, my friend Charles. You know, here at the podcast, what we're trying to do is spread the word and have some honest conversations about life. And I like to say we dig into the truths and challenges of trying to live life as we might wish, because many of us, we aim to live a certain way, but we get bunched up. And I think both at work and at home, we struggle with the gap between where we are at the moment and where we would want to be. And if we were able to peel back the layers of the things that bind us and hold us back from where we want to go, and we can talk about that openly, maybe we can find an easier path forward. So I am doing this for the benefit of everyone, and hopefully you get something out of it. And I really do feel that we're all in this thing together and we need to help each other. So this podcast show is about us. And my co-host for episode 19 is my friend, Charles. And Charles earned his name Pops in his local community because of his natural ability to speak up and be a bit of a leader and be a bit of a spokesperson. Charles lights up a room and he welcomed me the first time I ever met him, just kind of out of the blue. And Charles is someone that I'm very thankful to know, and I look forward to getting to know him more, and I'm happy to share the microphone with Charles today. So Charles is a father. He's got two daughters, and he graduated from University of Wisconsin with a management degree, and he's a very good man. He's got a very good heart. And he's not afraid to speak up and he likes to talk. So it's, it's going to be, this is going to be a lot of fun. And I have a feeling we're going to do a few more episodes together down the road. But Charles, why don't you just give everybody an update on what's going on in your world and what's happening in your life right now? And, and we'll roll right into it. Yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing well, Roger. Thanks for the introduction. I'm not sure about how much of that I've, uh, it truly earned. I just sort of, you know, try to live life as it comes. Well, you know, I think that's the beauty in the humility of just a good person is sometimes we might tend to think a little less of ourselves, but the rest of the world sees us as being more special than maybe we think we are. But you do an amazing job, dude, and I'm very honored to be your friend. I thank you for that. The pleasure is all mine. Glad thank you. Made your acquaintance. Yeah, it's been good. Let's see. I, well, as, you, as you alluded to, uh, they they call me pops. Uh, you know, I, I I tend to just sort of let life at this point in my life, you know, come to me, and I experience every day, you know, as it comes or as it unfolds itself. To most of my life, I'd like to think that I was a planner and uh, tried to put things in order in hopes to, uh, to a certain extent, control my destiny, 
you know, and, and as they say, you want to tell the Lord a, a good joke, you know, tell him that you have plans. I found that to be pretty accurate as my life has gone, especially over the last year or maybe even over the last five years. You know, as they say, life has uh, presented itself to me, different obstacles, and different challenges. And I just sort of try to uh, take them as they come, you know, deal with them the best that I can or as I, uh, as I see is the right way. Yeah, well, I commend you because I definitely see you living your life best way you know how and in a way that's true to you. And you and I have had quite a few conversations about this, that you're living truthfully by your standard and by the standard you have within the world. And not everybody can do that. That's a tough call for a lot of people. So good for you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I have one rule in the show, and that is total truth or pass. So if there's something you don't want to talk about, just say no, we'll pass or we'll get back to it later. I think we have a lot to talk about and probably we will end up doing multiple episodes here, but we'll just get started with this one. So the first step of the process is you got to flip a coin and figure out who asked the first question. Oh, okay. Do you have a coin? Yeah, I have a, I, I do here. There's a distinct heads and a distinct tails uh, to this. We will call uh, this side tails. All right. This side heads. You call it and flip it. All right, let's say uh, tails. Uh, this coin will have come up heads, so then it will be your call. All right, very good. What are two or three of the biggest challenges you're facing right now? in your life, your current day life, your kind of top two or three? That's, that's, a, that's a good question. I'd say that uh, just e- e- existing or, or trying to maintain my, my sanity, you know, in life with the different uh, influences and stimuli that, that, that they come at you in this rat race, you know, that we call society, in the world, this being a video or non-video telecast, I'm, I'm a black man, you know, living in America. And, uh, you know, I, I hate to be the person to bring this to people's attention, but life isn't fair, and especially for a black man in America. So I say that keeping my sanity inside of a, a system that is designed to keep you down over the decades has been formulated or, you know, as a, as a, as a book that I, that I read recently, uh, the new Jim Crow has stated a system that has been uh, reformulated since the days of Jim Crow to keep the industrial complex in uh, its order and, and going forward um, for the financial profits of the, uh, the, the upper 1%. I'd say that's probably, you know, keeping my, 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 my wits and means about me being, you know, the number one challenge, try, attempting to um, be, a, be a good person or, or be, be somebody that my children will someday be able to look back on and to say, you know, this man, I, this, this man I'm proud of, you know, to call my father and hopefully um, 
to a certain extent, have them wish to, to emulate, emulate me. I'd say those would be probably the, the two number one challenges or the two number one goals, maybe not necessarily stated, but things that I think about on, on a regular basis, you know, you know, with food, clothing and shelter, you know, obviously being, you know, the number one priorities or, or they, they, they should be, you know, as far as existence going. Because we haven't really broken the ice there, but you don't, you don't own a roof. You're not renting a roof and shelter as one of the most basic human needs. That's a challenge for you. Yeah. Uh, you know, as I like to think, as I was saying, as I sort of alluded to before, I like to have been a, to think to myself as a planner and as a thinker, you know, and at one time in my life, I, w- I was living the American dream. You know, the four bedroom house, two car garage, two bath or bathroom and a half living out in the suburbs, or, you know, as you alluded to the, the, the roof over my head, you know, and at this time, the, that, that is not something that I've availed myself of. I'm living, um, I'm living in a hotel. Um, my contract there is limited and I'm attempting to um, go forward and someday, but a lot of folks do try to achieve. And, and as I had at one time, you know, the, the vacation home and, and the, uh, the family home once more, a roof over my head is there's something that I would, uh, I, I, I would like to have again. So then with that in turn, being able to, um, spend more time with my children and watch them grow, grow through their teenage years. Yeah. I mean, you grew up more middle to upper class and still, I mean, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but that doesn't do shit for you because the world still kicks you down as the black man, right? I mean, is that accurate or is that, is there a spin to that? Well, I like to look at America as an equal hater country. (laughs) <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I've had friends that, you know, single parent households, mother worked at uh, Denny's or, or IHOP, you know, who have uh, prescribed to own their own businesses, you know, work on Wall Street and, and, and so forth, as well as uh, friends that have grown up in, you know, that same environment that um, end up homeless. So being Black and what I call is supposed to be a colorblind society is not necessarily going to be a mantra on you that is going to hold you back. But I would say that there's going to be a certain percentage of society, especially in certain parts of the country, you know, not necessarily just the South, more so in the North, you know, as I've learned or as I've begun to see where being a certain color is going to definitely hinder you or hold you back from certain positions. I mean, we do not need to go you know, any further than, you know, certain Fortune 500 companies, you know, American Family Insurance going unnamed, you know, they've been cited for um, incidences by the federal government of redlighting, you know, over the years, you know, companies right here in our own community, you know, which is the uh, biased practice of, you know, of basically disparaging certain parts of the community that are definitely historically and traditionally visited or lived in by, by minorities. You know, so, you know, like I said, I will not say that being a black man is going to be a hindrance, you know, towards me. If anything, it makes me be be a better man, you know, as I've um, or as my mother would say, you know, I have to be on my game 100 percent of the time where, you know, the other folks may not have to be, you know, because I do not know who is going to try to hold me back, who is going to try to put that on me or that stereotype on me saying, oh, yeah, look at this, 
SOB, you know, he, look how he's acting, you know, you know, that's typical, you know, I need to be better or attempt to be better. Not saying that, uh, that I am, though I do not feel like I am, but I do understand that I have certain advantages and it, uh, behooves me to actually try to bring those to the table of a chance. I can, I, I have the opportunity that I can get. I don't know. I'm just guessing and talking out of my ass. Cause I'm not black. No but- kidding. But for you, yeah, right. You know, you talk about it challenges me to be a better person and to rise above some of that and be on your game all the time. I mean, it seems like you do that very well. I mean, that's what attracted me to you right away is you were friendly and you were open and you were very warm and inviting. And it was extremely easy to talk to you. And again, I'm assuming, but I have to think that some days that's really hard to do. <laughs> oh, you know, I thank you for that, Roger. Uh, I, I always hate to steal some of the colloquialisms from corporate America, but the only one that I can really get or that comes to mind when, 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 when you say that is, is the one that I'll never forget my, my boss when I was with waste management supervising there. Yeah, she stated, it is what it is. You know, and that seems to be the, you know, Carol, she was very, with her New York accent, was very uh, profound in, in saying those types of things. It kind of maybe brings a chuckle to my, to my spirit, even all these years later. But it is what it is. You know, you can either, you know, put up or shut up. I'm going to put my pants on one leg at a time, just like anybody else. And I'm going to, you know, wake up and face the day just like anybody else. But life is going to hand you lemons sometimes. You know, we're going to. You know, see, see what we can make out of that life going forward is going to be, it is what it is. Now, if you wish to take a bad situation and then compound on it and then make it worse or be, you know, that uh, Debbie Doubter or the no sayer, we can, we all have that in us, you know, but the one thing that we do have in us is we can control, you know, our response, you know, to the stimuli that's being uh, placed upon us. You know, you can take the criticisms and the negativity and the, you know, like I'm saying, the naysayers, and you can internalize that and you can take it to heart and you can be like, yeah, that's me. And then you can, you know, not get out of bed or you can lay there all day long. You can lay down and you can say, go ahead and keep kicking me. Or you can say, Hey, you know, it is what it is. You know, this is where we're at. This is where I want to be. And you know, this is the attitude that I have to, you know, portray going forward and I think that we all know that person that no matter who you, no matter what you say to them, no matter what you see them, unless you see them in their personal life, you know, they've always got this big smile on their face and they're always joking and, and so forth. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying to, to be that person, you know, cause you have to take everything with a grain of salt, but you can control your, your actions and your response. And, you know, the only one of the things in this world that you never, never get a second chance to do is give a first impression. And you never know, especially when you're dealing with small children or, or adolescents like I have in my life, you know, you never know who's watching. So to live your life almost as though you're always on camera or you're being videotaped or, you know, you can't replay the ball game is, you know, something that I do prescribe to do in my life. Not that it's a falsehood or a fictivity. I, I like to think that, um, I'm going to portray it to the outside world the way that I feel inside. And I, you know, and that is the, uh, you know, that is the person that I prescribe to be. 
is that person who, like I said, is not always going to be positive, not always seeing the silver lining. It's going to be real because it is what it is. And I'm going to try to protect that that feeling, you know, going forward and, you know, making people feel, you know, comfortable with the fact that, you know, I'm comfortable in my own skin. Now I'm comfortable with what it is, you know, that I'm dealing with, you know, and where I am. And I'm not going to be um, uncomfortable just because somebody else around me is projecting a certain amount of energy. You know, I found that I can feel as we, you know, as we'll probably get into, you know, later on, I'm a, I'm a recovered alcoholic as people could feel my energy when I was in the throes of my addiction, you know, especially the negative energy, you know, you can feel that and you can feel the positive energy. And, you know, I definitely try to curtail, you know, my responses to that. Is it going to be as, as, as another white boss when I was at American family, you know, Ed would, Ed would say, you know, it, it costs you nothing to listen. Not a, not a dime. Now, how you respond to that, that's on you. But as far as you saying what you want to say, doing what you want to do, you know, as long as you don't put your hands on me, it, it costs me nothing to listen. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. You know, one of the things you said was keeping your sanity, you know, keep keeping your wits about you. How, <laughs> how are you doing in that regard right now? Well, that's, that's definitely, that's a good question. Quite interesting question uh, because of where I've placed myself, you know, at, at this time in my life, I find myself surrounded by insanity. And when you find yourself surrounded by um, insanity or craziness. I, I, I find myself at this time in my life, um, as I alluded to before, me being a recovered addict, um, working with a lot of other addicts. And, you know, that's the best definition of that lifestyle and the life that they live every day. And then the lifestyle that I live every day, being in direct contact with them is insanity. And so then Understanding or feeling the difference in between the insanity and a reality is a fine edge, you know, where, where it's at and when you step over it and, you know, when, when, when can you not come back when it is no longer a choice, it actually becomes your life, your everyday life to live that insanity. You know, I found that, you know, I was reading, I believe it may be a rock in your, in your, in your washroom a little while ago, where it talks about mindfulness. And for me to subscribe to a day of mindfulness or even a moment of mindfulness or, you know, being able to step back and have that time of mindfulness to myself or, you know, the, you know, as my mother would say, <laughs> it kind of tickles me to this day. God rest your soul. You know, you need to leave his black ass alone. Or as you say, <laughs> I like to be alone. You know, I'm not a hermit and I'm not saying that I'd like to be away from people because I do love uh, contact, especially with ones that I love my, you know, my children and family, but for me to be able to decompress, you know, and maybe to sit next to my fire, you know, or going, you know, when I was living in Tinney Park for a while, to be able to walk out and, and, and watch the sunset on a regular basis, you know, not just the sunset at 9 or 7.52 or, or something like that effect, but sit there for an hour and, hour and watch it actually drop down, you know, underneath the horizons. That is something that I found that centers myself, makes it so I can come back to, you know, who I am and lock out or detach myself from the, 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 the lack of a better word, you know, the, the, the insanity, you know, of, especially as I was saying, the, the people that I've, uh, that I've surrounded myself with purposely, you know, to a certain extent over the last six months, it, the, the insanity and the fact that it's real is uh, the most tangible thing 
that inside of these people's lives, and then therefore me being in direct contact with them, that it being real, and then it being very difficult not to um, internalize that feeling. It's uh, sometimes I find that to be hard, and sometimes I find that to be difficult, and sometimes I find myself being wrapped up and encompassed in it. And at that time is when I definitely find, you know, my mother's words, you know, poetic, you know, as I say, and sometimes you need to leave his black ass alone. And I need to, you know, go somewhere and be by myself, you know, with nobody around to talk to me, no noise, no TV, just, you know, sit back and, you know, as my wrestling coach, you know, in, in high school, when he taught me to, or when I start, first started visualizing, you know, the moment and trying to stay in the moment, meditation, you know, I, I found that to be very helpful, you know, especially as I have gotten older and the, the visualization, you know, of where I want to go, you know, how I, how I want to get there. And, you know, tense, it harkens me back to, uh, you know, what I was saying before, <laughs> my whole experiences through college when I was touring with the Grateful Dead and so forth, my planning aspects of life, you know, at those times when everything is quiet and I can visualize um, where it is I want to go and how is it I want to get there. I, I do some of my best thinking, but my best centering of myself and my best thought processes or I shouldn't say my best, but it just seems to, they seem to have worked, they seem to work out best or as I've experienced them in my young 50 years of my life, that uh, when, when I do those things or I um, progress down that pathway, it seems to work out a lot better than if I just sort of leap into things, if I just sort of charge into things, or if I haphazardly go uh, into things without a true thought process or like I was saying before, you know, being, being left alone with my own thoughts. And, and actually being able to, um, you know, think about them and then mindfully go through the process. Yeah, you know, there's that famous saying, right? You are who you surround yourself with. And I have not necessarily embraced that myself. I don't dispute it. I don't. No, but no. My mother was very famous for saying that. Yeah, but it's Surround not, yourself with good people. Yeah, it's, but it's not, it's not something I ever threw around, but oh, I hang out with the, drug dealers and pimps these days in my life. Yeah. Right. Well, that's my point. Well, well that, <laughs> that's my point. I mean, you're talking about the craziness and the insanity and, you know, you were living in a community, a place where there was a large group of people, over a hundred people that were experiencing homelessness altogether. And in there, that was your setting for insanity and and the craziness, right? And so how well did you or how well are you keeping yourself from that, you know, besides the the moments when you can find yourself alone, you know, besides the, the mindfulness, trying to keep yourself kind of on the right side of where you want to be emotionally? How's, how's that going? Cause that's gotta be a real challenge, you know, surrounded by a hundred other people that are really struggling on every level in their life. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 I, I would say that was an interesting, uh, that was an interesting time in my life living in that community. As I had alluded to before or earlier, when I, when I first experienced homelessness uh, earlier this year, you know, I was, um, I was by myself. And at that time, you know, I was quite comfortable. As I've learned 
all the large communities or large towns here in America have a, a tense city. And this is the environment that I was thrust into. And it was you know, the first time in my life I've ever experienced anything you know, on that level of people who, who has uh, forgotten, um, neglected, you know, degraded, kicked, put down, and, and forgotten. And just that alone, to wake up to that alone, let alone the, the, the drugs and the, the, you know, from the alcohol to the hard drugs to the soft drugs, to, to, to just everything, you know, the prostitution, the beatings, the shootings, the stabbings, the deaths on a regular basis, just to, just to, just to, to experience that alone on an everyday basis, not just the six months that I was involved in, but for people that had been there for 10 and 15 years, I could see it driving a person insane and driving a person crazy. And I, myself, you know, I, I, a lot of good people, you know, that I met like you, Roger, and this and Donna, you know, and the community who were activists and reach out to me and you know provided me with one of the things that I one of the things that I found solace is that people brought me firewood. And uh fire was one of the meditational points that I had when I first learned to meditate you know, from one of my instructors was a visualization on a candle and the visualization on the flame. And I found myself doing that. And over the years that I've learned to meditate and in my visualization process i've been able, i've learned to be able to lock things out especially when i have a focal point so i found myself yeah you know it was, it was pretty funny um one of the individuals in the community abby she's like just sit next to your fire and a little did she know mm-hmm. that was one of my solaces at the time was i was able to lock myself onto my fire and i kept that fire burning for six months straight <laughs> i mean for you know hot coals in the morning so you know i went to bed at night I, and I found that to be uh, a tremendous um, relief, that meditational force. And then as well as the fact that I was able to help um, my, my corporate background, as I've alluded to in the past, um, being in management, but also um, being a first responder at every level. I'm a first aid and CPR AED certified uh, through the American Red Cross uh, five separate times over my lifetime since college and being able to work with the department of health here in Madison and different cities with the um, passing out of cleans, the, uh, the passing out of clean boxes. You know, I got to save three people's lives this last summer and to be an individual who, you know, for lack of a better word, these people would have died, you know, without my assistance, not that I'm out there, but knowing that there was nobody else in that community um, of, of this 10 city that had the, the trust of the people that, that they care that are in power. There's a lot of people out there that are in power that don't care. And then we, we hopefully will be able to get into that at late date and times, you know, and show them that they don't care, you know, on more levels than one and using their powers to be, to, you know, as I said, hold people not only down, but to put them down and keep them in a place, place just to keep their standard of living or what they think is their standard of living. You're not knowing that, you know, the more people that we get involved inside of something, the better off that everybody is. You know, not just having just one viewpoint coming forward, you know, getting everybody involved from the lower classes, to the upper classes. But me being able to have that entrustment from, you know, as I said, some, some some very good as my, my parents are from the South. So don't don't take this the wrong way, Roger. Some good white folks that came around and entrusted in me, you know, the, the clean needles, you know, the Narcan, you know, the chore, you know, the list goes on. 
if anybody knows what citric acid is used for, but you know, those different things. Yeah, I was entrusted with that. And then in turn, the people that use those devices were coming to me and then asking me for them on a regular basis. You know, that 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 did that did wonders for me to know that I was actually in touch with reality. I was in touch with, you know, the outside world. And I was actually being able to bring these two worlds together when the you know, I, I I know for a fact, just from my brief stint in, you know, in the homeless community, the distrust of the man is, is real. And, you know, and with my involvement with the man, I know that the man keeping somebody down and the man doing stuff that's underhanded, the man, uh, you know, when I say the man, I mean the powers to be white, black, but the people that have been entrusted with our with power in our community, you know, coming forth to hold people into position or to put people into position just because they have fearing from them, you know, is, it's just on a level that that'll drive you insane. That alone will drive you insane. It's just, yeah. So that, I mean, I, so I, I would say those points, you know, the, the trust that was enacted in me, you know, from the powers to be inside of the city of Madison, you know, the department of health, some very good people there. I mean, you know, them coming out, you know, at the times of night that they did, you know, in a place where, me being a black man, I didn't want to go until I lived there or wouldn't go. You know, <laughs> it, it was, it, 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 you know, those people deserve a medal, you know, and then the trust that they gave in me, you know, delivering thousands of dollars worth of supplies, you know, not just firewood, wool, socks, pillows, blankets, um, little John's foods coming in on a daily basis with food for people that, you know, would in other aspects go hungry. You know, with, you know, with where this community was in conjunction to some of the homeless shelters, you know, in the downtown Madison area, you know, these people, these, these, like I said, these people are the ones that kept me sane. These people are the ones that let me know that there are light at the end of the tunnel, that there are good people out there, that not everybody is bad. Not everybody hates you just because, you know, where you happen to be, be it because of your addiction or be it, you know, because you were born into this lifestyle or just be because, you know, bad or dumb luck. You know, because, you know, you know, as I've said, my mother would never say this, man, shit happens and it happens to the best of us, you know, and, 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 and when it does happen, that's when you learn, you know, not only what you're made of, but, you know, that there's other people, you know, out there that, 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 that care and that, you know, give of themselves for no other reason, except for the fact that they're giving and those are the types of tangible aspects that I could put my hands on. I could put around. Let me know that, you know, that I'm, you know, I'm alive. You know, I have feelings. I don't need to become cold and jaded and, and, and rock solid, you know, to endure, you know, what, you know, you alluded to, Roger, is just insanity. You know, to, to, like I said, I had two people die outside of my tent. Two people, they, they died, you know, <laughs> You know, I, you know, I never, I never, I never saw somebody die in front of me before. You know, I never had the yellow tape wrapped around where I lived before in the corner, zipping people up in bags. You know, that happened twice within, you know, within months. And, and, and well, I mean, it's it's kind of strange. Uh, once I uh, once I left Tin City because of my uh, exposure to the variety of people, I went to a to a because I went to a COVID facility 
um, for the Department of Health had me there for 10 days until I was cleared from quarantine until I could move on. You know, my neighbor died from an overdose. It's just the insanity is real. People are dying. They're dying alone. You know, they're dying without hope. And if you let yourself go there, it'll drive you crazy. But like I was saying, as I alluded to before, a lot of good people, a lot of yourself. I mean, I mean, and there's so many more. I don't want to leave, leave people out, but I mean, I'll just, just point to yourself and Diane as people that were, um, Diane is part of a, a large white folks church on the West side, you know, just did just yeoman's work. You know, my involvement was more so just a, a tool, you know, or an implement, you know, as I was saying before, somebody that these people you know, knew and put their trust in, you know, as, you know, as, you know, you couldn't have shown up with a badge and, you know, and, or, or just some out of the blue, you know, I had to, you know, I had to have my, my introduction from Abby, you know, there, there, like I said, the, 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 the names just go, I mean, the names and the list goes on. I don't want to do anybody a disservice. So I just stop right there, you know, with those two, you know, definitely brought me into the community, let everybody know that I was on the up and up. I wasn't a narc and, and, and really made me feel at home. You know, and all, all, all those things, all of the above, you know, kept my sanity in knowing that, you know, I was, a, you know, I was a human being, you know, not only to the outside world, you know, but in their world, they didn't have to let me in. A lot of people don't make it for that reason. You know, the distrust in the homeless community is, and it's well, it's well-deserved and well-earned, you know, is, is rampant. You know, I mean, it's not just the environment of, Drug, drug dealers, prostitutes, and pimps that, you know, the underworld, you know, as they say, these, these individuals have a lot of times, like to include my times, you know, distrust the man, you know, for good reason. Yeah. Do you think from your perspective, you know, a lot of the challenges with poor mental health, do you think some of that bubbles up? in the homeless community because of the association and you're, you know, living amongst other people who have really been challenged in, in more ways than they can handle. Do you think it kind of bubbles up there or did people come in with that poor mental health? I'm going to answer probably or, or attempting to expound on that on a, on a two prong, two prong level. You know, one, I believe that addictions, you know, being a disease, and as I expounded upon or, or alluded to before, being insanity breeds or fosters poor mental health. And, uh, you know, I, and I'm going to throw alcohol in there, you know, me being a recovered alcoholic, my thoughts being that that's the worst of all these drugs. Being, you know, as I was for, you know, well over a decade, for lack of a better term, screwed up every day you know, will lead your thought process to not being based in reality, whatever your thoughts of reality are, you know, I'm not even going to go there or maybe in another episode we can, but whatever your thoughts of reality or reality as what we see it is, or the norm, you know, going forward where you're able to, now I'm not saying a functioning crackhead. I'm not saying a functioning alcoholic. I'm not saying a functioning, you know, down user, up user, you know, hard, soft. I'm not saying that. I'm saying what normal society sees as going forward or a functioning person. Living or lending yourself 
to that type of environment or that type of lifestyle will foster insanity. Just on the fact that, you know, don't get me on to the prohibitions of marijuana because, uh, you know, <laughs> us being, us being, you know, it's being America and you being over 18 years old, you should be able to be able to make your own decisions. So, but when that decision becomes an addiction or something that you can't live without, you know, that's a base of insanity itself. So we have that prong of that theory, especially inside of the homeless community, be it Tent City, the large one that I live in, that, that, that was, we can get into the unjustness of it being shut down or, you know, what the city has said they are and aren't going to do. And we'll see about that. To other homeless communities here in Madison, you know, I stopped by one, you know, last night being Christmas. I stopped by and dropped off food, you know, from my, from my people's house, you know, at another homeless camp here in Madison. You know, these folks were, it was cold last night and they were sleeping outside on two couches huddled around a fire, you know, with there being options to go somewhere else, you know, is that the distrust from the insanity, you know, is that the drug speaking that being a form of insanity? And then of course, as in all of society, if we want to go back to the sixties or the fifties or the thirties, whenever, when they would lock people up in insanity asylums, or they'd lock you in the back room and say, you know, that's uncle Gene or ain't, ain't Betty, you know, and you know, she stays back there. We are going to have a certain portion of the insanity that's real mental illness that is real. People that, you know, are, are, have, have special needs, you know, in that area. So, so as I say, two prong, we have a, individuals that came to my, my, you know, I'll call my community. It's my people. Cause I, you know, I, I was there for six months, very brief time. Um, that, that they came to that community that I embraced and I helped as much as I could. I helped to this day that showed up with these challenges. And then there are the people that have these challenges visited upon them through addiction, be it um, something that they do as an escape. A friend of mine suffers from PTSD. He, you know, he, he, he's a veteran and it being a real aspect in his life and something that mentally affects him, the effect that it has on him manifest other aspects of his life that are for lack of a better word are mental illness and are things that he believes are real he's mind and pictures them as real and then he expounds them or he articulates them as real and from the outside world or somebody who doesn't know them you'll look at and be like you are you know bat shit crazy when the simple fact is you know he he is part of the community that didn't show up or wasn't born with the mental insanity in the, the gene or, or whatever you would like to think, but has had it visited upon him through some of society's influences, be it drugs, be it alcohol, be it war. You know, this, this is, this is real and definitely inside of the homeless community. Like I said, two prongs. I saw it, you know, on, on a regular basis every day. And it visited, started to visit itself upon Upon myself, you know, as I alluded to earlier in our segment, you know, without um, a lot of good people, you know, around me and without a lot of um, tools that I had when I showed up towards, you know, centeredness and mindfulness and meditation, you know, you know, there before, there without the grace of God go I, you know, without a doubt. Yeah, no kidding. I have a family member who was 
a paramedic firefighter in Baltimore City. And his stories of child abuse, car accidents, murder, heroin overdose, you know, all the fentanyl and car fentanyl and his PTSD just screwed him up. And I can barely imagine what he had to go work on every day for a decade. And it's got to be similar to war, you know, and how can that not scramble your brain would be my question, but man, that's tough. Yeah, sure. Sure. It's been uh, documented through history, even going back to the Roman centurion times, you know, the, the men, when they came back from combat, didn't progress directly back into the towns with their loved ones, you know, family, they stayed outside of the camps and for, for a week or so, so they could, you know, as I call it, decompress, you know, because, you know, as they say, war is hell. And then, you know, the, the sight of that and the feelings of that and the internalization of that alone will manifest itself. I'm sure and do just horrible things, you know, to the individual. I, that's why I take my hat off to all of our military men and women who, who have served and, you know, and, and I thank them. You know, because that is something that, you know, I don't know if I could do. I, I really don't. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. You know, you know, Roger, I, I you know, like I said, we have a brief history. Uh, you know, and I, I do know some things about you. I wish to know a, a lot more about you. You know, and I, I, I truly believe that, you know, you were put into my life for a reason. You know, not just the nice clothes that you gave me that kept me warm. You know, on some of the cold nights there in Tennessee. City. You know, but one of the things that I, I would like to know is what brought you to the Madison, Wisconsin area? I mean, I understand that, you know, Money Magazine says for you white folks, it's the best place in America to live. You know, I understand that 100%, but what in generally brought you here to Madison, Wisconsin? <laughs> well, if... if, if <laughs> Sorry if, to put you on the spot like that, my if, brother. No, no, it's good. It's good. <laughs> if White People Magazine called a great place to live, I don't know if I want to live there. But um, <laughs> no money, man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I get it. I get it. <laughs> but um, no, I was working. I was working for Trek Bicycles in Baltimore and D.C. And I'd been working there for four years and I really busted my ass and I'm an addict. So I put a lot of my addictive nature into a lot of different things. You know, I've had six different addictions. I'm in one now. And I worked my ass off at work and I got promoted. And the promotion was I had to move to Wisconsin and work in the office in Waterloo as regional sales manager for the East Coast, for all the East Coast business for Trek. So I had 13 outside sales reps and I couldn't do it remotely. I had to be in the office. So in 2001... Me and my wife at the time and our one-year-old son, we moved to Wisconsin and settled in Cottage Grove. Yeah. Oh, okay. okay. Pretty simple, basic thing. It's hard to tell where I would have landed otherwise. I could have just stayed in Baltimore. It's really hard to tell. I mean, there's all those little twists and turns that we all go through in our lives I moved to Vail, Colorado in 1985 to be a ski bum, <laughs> to get away from the needle, 
Okay. That was, that was the big thing. And I stayed there for two years and ended up just not having a, a good, safe place to live. And I was working for a guy who was a little bit of a tyrant. He was a lot bit of a tyrant. <laughs> I've, I've met that white man before. And that, that white man was not a nice man. And I, you know, he jumped down my throat one day and it was so unfair. I quit on the spot. And then I didn't have a job and I was sleeping on a sofa and paying $900 a month rent. And I just, I was ready to be done. Uh, And so I moved back to Baltimore, but um, I could see myself maybe living in the mountains somewhere otherwise, but, but I was married with a kid and we'd bought a house. So, you know, there's a good chance 20 years later, we'd still be back in that same house in Baltimore. Right on, right on. Well, I, I, I'm glad that the forces did turn you in this direction. I know there's been a positive influence on my life so far. Well, positive thank, influence on my life. So far. Yeah, thank you. You're very kind, and I, I don't feel like I've really done shit, but I've done something, and so I try to lead with intent. And even if I can't make as big of a difference as I want to, I try to do something because mm-hmm. no, and it's that's much appreciated. Place. Any platform, you know, as as you know myself until, you know, quite recently, I, uh, you know, I was very content to, to 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 sit in the back and let things, you know, come to me, you know, and I mean, and it was uh, was definitely some prodding, or not not necessarily prodding from your from, from from you yourself, but almost being thrust into a situation where I wasn't given a choice to actually come forward, you know, and and go to this media aspect you know, to the papers uh, and to the, to the news stations, you know, and start to, um, you know, expound on, you know, some of these different issues that hopefully we'll be able to get into, but, you know, you know, that being, being an issue as, as you guys probably, you know, or as you know, or, or as people will, will know, I like to, I like to talk, you know, and, and part of the reason I like to talk is I was raised in the church. Now, I know a bit of uh, background, uh, you know, on yourself, we won't go, you know, quite into that, but I, you know, I, I'd like to hear a little bit, uh, I, is your religious base at this time, you know, a, a current? Have you attended any of the, uh, you know, churches? You know, maybe, uh, you know, when I say churches, I mean like, uh, you know, the Pentecostals or the Baptist churches here, you know, in the Madison area, since you've, you've been in the area? I am not a churchgoer. Oh, okay. And my father was a Protestant minister. He graduated from the seminary, Andover-Newton theology school in Massachusetts before I was born. He had his master's degree in theology, and he was preaching in the 60s. And my mother left when I was very young, so my father raised me and my three sisters by himself in 1969, which is a real challenge unto itself. And we were forced to do a lot of things that he thought was best and we had no option. And I'm sure plenty of other people grow up the same way. They got to do what their parents tell them. But, you know, we were forced to go to church. And the strange dynamic is, Charles, that we didn't go to my father's church. I didn't go and listen to my father preach every day. I never heard my father preach. 
Now, a couple times, for whatever reason, later in life, I sat in on a couple services or presentations that he had here and there. But when we were younger, we were forced to go to another church because the other church had Sunday school. And my father's church did not have Sunday school. So we were young enough that we needed to be kind of looked after and managed by Sunday school teachers. So the disconnect for me was we were forced to go to this church on the other side of Baltimore and kind of left there most of the day. And I had no connection with the minister or the message or any of the church administrators. And I revolted a little bit. And when it came time, when I had a voice and I was able to choose between the church and no church, I chose no church. Mm. And by that time, I was a full-blown drug addict. And so drugs really ruled my life for 13 years. And then when I quit doing drugs, finally, I was a professional athlete. I raced mountain bikes. And so every weekend, I was off somewhere in the country racing. So I really did not have my head and heart pointed towards the church. I respected my father from his orientation. He ended up kind of separating himself from the church after 30 years. And my father and I had a couple conversations before he died about religion, spirituality, just guiding beliefs. And I don't think I am missing a whole lot for me by my measure because I hold myself accountable for my actions and I try to do what I think is right. And I don't think anybody is going to come save me when I'm in trouble or forgive me when I screw up. I think it's all up to me. And you can call that whatever you want, but it's just the way I live. And sure, sure. I respect people who find faith and power and guidance and light and comfort in religion. It's just not where I come from. Sure. That kind of leads me into my, my, my next question, you know, because, you know, I, I am not a, a person that believes that you, you need to, um, to, to go to church. You know, I believe that, you know, um, a gathering of two or two or more people, you can have church. I did not believe that you need to be, you know, in a church. I believe it was you know, John the Baptist that uh, baptized Jesus Christ. You know, they weren't in a church. You know, so I, you know, I'm not one of those people who expounds on that or, or believe that to any extent. You know, Jesus, I think I believe it was um, the ex governor of Minnesota, you know, ex marine. I think his name was Jesse Ventura, who spoke about finding comfort in the church and finding comfort in religion. You know, and people that 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 need that. You know, and, and so I'm not I'm not I'm not alluding towards that. But I I, I would guess would you do you find yourself as a um, agnostic? Do you would you consider yourself, or 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 do you see yourself as religious based, or or what would you classify yourself as? And I, I I'm a believer myself. Yeah, and and God bless you, brother. I would not call. I don't even know when 
what agnostic is. I'm sorry, I'm not very well. They, they don't know. I'm not educated. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm in a very tra- nice house right now. Well, <laughs> yeah, but traditionally, you, you graduated high school and you graduated college. I didn't. Neither. So my education is on the street and I didn't read a book till I was 30. So <laughs> there you go. But no, I don't, I don't consider myself an atheist or agnostic or whatever, 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 whatever. I don't consider myself anything. I'm, Hmm. I'm me. I'm me. And people are like, well, does that make you spiritual? And I was like, Ah. what does that mean? (laughs) Call me anything you want. But to me, I, I try to live openly obviously with the podcasts and the website and all the other shit I do, I try to be transparent and I try to do what I think is right. And I fully admit when I'm wrong and I raise my hand when I don't know, and I don't pretend to be anybody that I'm not. And I don't pretend to know anything that I don't know. And I haven't done with my own two hands. And I try to, hold myself accountable and hold my kids accountable to the best of my ability to what I think is right. And I don't call myself anything. You know, I grew up Protestant. My kids were baptized Catholic. My first, my first wife, Andrea is Catholic. You know, she goes to church every weekend, but my kids don't go to church because they never really enjoyed it for them. But they're very good people. They have a very good heart. And when I first met you, Charles, about a month ago, around Thanksgiving, when you were sleeping outside in a tent and it's freezing cold, my son was with me by his choice. He wanted to help and he wanted to take whatever he could, whatever, whatever he had, whatever we had out to that park, out to Rindall Park and see what we could do. And as you know, and you even kind of pushed me in this direction, it's not about money. The most popular item that first night was wool socks, <laughs> right? I passed out, you know, 12 pair of wool socks and we had coats and blankets and comforters and, you know, all kinds of other stuff. People wanted socks. Yeah. And, you know. Yeah, the little bend you had on the dolly. Yeah. I remember that. And then, you know, going out and buying 15 Chick-fil-A sandwiches, you know, it's not about writing a big check to the homeless consortium in Madison. Yeah. Because where does that go? into somebody else's pockets, but we can get well, into that I, later. You know, I don't know, but I just know that I, can, have been I done. can help. Well, <laughs> I can, I can help in a certain way. And I just try to live my life in a way that I think is correct. And, and honestly, the gut check for me, Charles is would my father approve? Mm. And the litmus test, you know, Rest in peace. I think he would. I think he would. I think he would be very happy. 
when I started my first nonprofit in Madison, he was too sick to come to the grand opening. And I'd been a fuck up my whole life, you know, and I, I hated my father for a long time. And him and I were far, far away from each other as far as our ability to communicate. And when I started that nonprofit to serve children that were at risk in the worst neighborhood in Madison, arguably Allied Drive, my father cried on the phone. Yeah. He just, he just cried because he, I think he realized I had come around. And that's that's the only title that's the only title I need. Sure, yeah. Living authentically through, especially through a loved one, them being deceased, I I gained my sobriety a year after ten days before the year anniversary of my mother's passing, and you know that was one thing that she always wanted was for for me to be sober, and I I couldn't achieve that during her life. You know, I mean, it's uh, it'll be go, coming on a decade of uh my sobriety and it was a decade this last october of my mother's past congratulations oh. congratulations that's that's Thank amazing you. no that's Thank amazing you. especially so we, i mean you've been we haven't even talked about it but you spent a piece in jail and then you got out and all your shit was gone <laughs> and you had maybe more money than we care to admit after your parents passed away and you were experiencing a piece of your life where you're sleeping outside and you're still sober. That's amazing. <laughs> That's, That's a amazing, miracle amongst dude. itself. It is. <laughs> it's absolutely amazing. And and you're not a meth head and you're not shooting up dope. You're not you're not so shooting heroin. Him. You know, you, call, <laughs> you called heroin the down, but you're not doing that shit. You're out there helping people. You're collecting. You're the you're the central organizer. You're like the greeting committee at that whole park. There was well over a hundred people there, and you're like the mayor of the city almost. <laughs> no, and you're not you're not drinking, you're not you're not shooting drugs. Like that is a miracle. It is. And they I think it's a cops. miracle. I think it's a miracle to the testament of your of your good heart and your willpower and your belief of what's right and wrong. Well, you know, as, as you alluded to, I, I definitely use my mother, you know, as, as a litmus test, you know, towards my decision-making, especially on that moral compass there, because, you know, as you know, we, we, y'all discuss it more, definitely more in the depth, you know, my moral compass has been warped, you know, especially towards the drugs and alcohol side since, you know, before I was touring with the Grateful Dead in college. You know, and, you know, and before I lived the, the, the frat boy lifestyle, you know, before I dropped into the depravities of, you know, of alcoholism, you know, for a good 15 years and, and, it, and it cost me my marriage. I use my mother, as I was saying, wanted me to uh, give up alcohol, you know, as as litmus test towards things. And I, and I look at her you know, towards that moral compass when I do want to pick up a drink. It's been a while, you know, since I've wanted to pick up a drink or I've had the, you know, the craving, you know, with alcoholism being a, um, you know, a, a, a disease of repetition, you know, where, where you have, you know, where you have the obsession and the compulsion to drink. 
you know, you're obsessed to drink and you're, you compulse, you compulse to drink, you know, it's been a, a long time since I've had, you know, that, the, that the cravings, you know, to that extent. But when I did have them or when the times do get hard, you know, I always do look, you know, to my mother in, in that anniversary, you know, and, and gain strength, you know, not only with her, you know, saying, baby, you know, do the right thing, make the right, you know, right decision, you know, uh, you know, to the fact that, you know, my sobriety day came, uh, you know, nine days before her, her passing, you know, um, and 27th of October, you know, a decade ago, which, <laughs> and I'm going to keep bringing this girl's name up until she calls me, but it's also Abby's birthday. I look at that, um, as being, um, a beacon, you know, of something that I, I, I don't wish to give up, you know, yeah. that anniversary, I do. I draw straight from, you know, it is is a big, it is, it is a big date in my life, you know, and hopefully, um, you know, it'll avail myself of, you know, having the uh, consciousness to, you know, make decisions that aren't the wrong decisions that cost me everything in my life that, you know, will lead to, you know, um, you know, mental um, prosperity for, for, and financial prosperity for my children, uh, you know, going forward. You know, you talk about your friend, Abby, how did you end up living at, the tent encampment on the east side of Madison, Rindall Park. How did you end up there? I, I went to that camp looking for Abby. Uh, we've been acquaintances for several years now, and I had truly had never spent any time with her. And I knew that that's where she was. And I went to that camp looking to see what her life was about, how she existed. And, uh, you know, I, I like to joke and tell her that I, I was there to babysit her, uh, but, you know, in reality, I was there to spend time with her and to see, uh, you know, what her life was all about, not to interfere, not to uh, try to push anything towards her in her direction or to change her lifestyle or anything. But I found out, you know, over the six months that I lived there, you know, it was a big park, you know, hundreds of acres. You know, she never moved any further than 25 yards away from where my tent was. You know, she could have lived anywhere. She always stayed there. And uh, we, we got to see each other every day, you know, for six months where uh, for the several years before that, we'd see each other for a week here, a week there. And, and she'd go back to her life and I'd, you know, go about my life. And she, she was always coming to, to me. So, you know, long story short, I had to say, you know, I, I went there looking for love or trying to find love or anything like that. But I, I, I did go there to learn more about somebody that I cared about and to see, you know, exactly how they existed and how they, uh, how they got how they got along in, in, in their lives. And I, I definitely got you know more than my dose of not just not 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 her. I, I mean I I kind of uh I knew what to expect when I when I came there to be with her. But uh as far as the the, the environment, prime example, uh, uh, an individual that I almost came to blows with within the first week that I was there, you know, you know, I I, I sent him a Merry Christmas card or a Merry Christmas text yesterday. You know, it's very, very, very interesting on how the community, you know, I adjusted and I came into that community definitely with, you know, the support of Abby, um, the support of Brittany, you know, the support of uh, Renee, you know, uh, you know, these, uh, you know, these individuals, it, uh, you know, you alluded to me being kind of, you know, the leader of the community, the leader of that community was a person called mom and the women in that community definitely came to the forefront as a lot of the, the tribes you know, around the world, you know, they're, you know, matriarchal, you know, but uh, they definitely, uh, for some of the heavier lifting, they, they, they go to the male support, 
that was uh, very interesting on how that camp was set up. And, you know, because of those women in my life, being in my life before and, and still to this point, they made sure that I was um, able to come into that community and was able to become adjusted as, you know, a true outsider, which I was. You know, I, I came from, as we said, for an upper middle class lifestyle is working in corporate America. Even after I spent my time in corporate incarcerated, I was able to, you know, find myself back in corporate America and climbing the totem pole of success, living out on, you know, there's a lot of money here in Madison, you know, living on the side of town where the money is kind of supposedly congregated. You know, I, I was able to, you know, fit into that community, you know, through the through the help of those, those individuals. Yeah. You know, if you don't mind sharing, you graduated from college. Your parents were middle to upper class. Both your parents had master's degrees and you had a pretty, pretty good life. You were a homeowner. You got married. You had kids. And then you went to jail and you got out. And you started working again, but then you were not employed and you did not have money for a house. How did that all happen? Okay. So, um, after my divorce, I, uh, I had the misconception or the, the dream that, you know, my family would reconcile and we would, uh, you, we'd get back together. You know, if if anything, for the for the good of the children, you know, was my thought process. And so I fought the divorce, uh, you know, uh, you know, most uh, quick divorces can be settled, you know, and my, my divorce dragged out for two years, you know, um, because of myself and you know, solely because of myself and the different things and trials and tribulations, you know, which may be, you know, a, a certain part of the of the unhealing or the slow to heal or reconciliation, not reconciliation process, but the moving on process that my former spouse is in my mind's eye, you know, experiencing at this time. So I was at that time, I was, um, couch, couch, surf, couch surfing. And then I, uh, as a lot of us males that, that, that I know of, you know, have a group of college friends and, you know, that one guy who, didn't get married, you know, but still found the good job, you know, and moved on, you know, after college, he bought a house and he was, uh, he was living in a house on, you know, on the near east side of Madison, kind of uh, down in the, uh, the Tinney Park area. You know, he, uh, he got married and he moved back to his hometown and he was uh, going to sell his house. But I, I was like, you know, I, I need a place to live. And so I moved in, I moved into his house. So I, and I lived there from, uh, 2014 through 2016. Then I went to jail and hopefully we can maybe later on or another episode, get into more in depth of, you know, some of the issues there. When I got out of jail, how long were you in jail? I spent a year in jail waiting on trial, waiting on trial. Wait, we correct. You weren't even convicted. No, they said a bond. You know, here in Wisconsin at this time, we still have bond for nonviolent offenses, and I could not uh, achieve bond. So I, I, wait, I waited for a year in jail on trial. Yeah. Yeah. Holy a, shit. Holy yeah, it's an shit. interesting thing here in Wisconsin that uh, the draconian system is definitely, uh, and Jim Crow system is definitely in play 
And as I said, the, that the book, The New Jim Crow, is specifically written about here in Dane County, Wisconsin. And they use the facets of the implementation of the Jim Crow laws manifested into uh, today here in Dane County, Wisconsin. They do it best. That's why the book was written about this place. Oh, Jesus. Mrs. Mrs. Alexander, who's written the book, it's, it's, uh, it's an eye-opener. Wow. It's an eye-opener. Dane County, Wisconsin, though. They do it best and foremost here in Jim Crow, without a doubt. Oh uh, God. When I got out of jail in 16, um, I went back into, I got, I got back into corporate America. You know, I mean, I'm not saying that the cream rises to the crop, but I do have certain tools in my toolbox, you know, that my mother made sure were there. You know, she made sure that this is back before the days of computers and cell phones. She made me take typing class. Hmm. And I, and, and I, you know, I fought that tooth and nail, but I found that to be such a valuable asset in my life to this point. <laughs> it is unbelievable. The fact that I can type, uh, it, 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 you know, it, it, it makes it so that when I take some of those BS tests that they give in corporate America, you know, I can type 60, 70 words a minute, you know, and then that right there takes you to the kind of the head of the class and the hiring pools in a lot of situations. Now I, I worked in a manufacturing corporate America in this last stint, but that being some of the tools that I have in my toolbox, um, I was able to start to um, go forward again. I was thrown in jail again. This time, it's it's amazing the way that the Jim Crow system works, that once they've gotten you into a situation of um, deleverage, the other tools that manifest themselves in their lives or the other individuals that take advantage of you that are part of the system become rambunctious and almost ravenous. And I mean, they all work for the man or they're all getting their bread buttered from a certain side by the man, but they take advantage of the situation so knowing that the system has deleveraged you. And then they just think that they can just take their pot shots off and that nobody's going to, you know, say anything or do anything. Or as I was said before, you know, the reason that a lot of the times that the homelessness, the homeless individuals are very distrustful of the man is because the man has henchmen's or hanger honors that just sit there like vultures and pick at you once they know that the system has absolutely deleveraged you to the point where you're vulnerable to that extent. And then that's what happened to me then here uh, in April of this year. I was taken complete advantage of by the system where I was reincarcerated, where my landlord at the time felt that I was definitely going to be sent away by the system at this time when the simple fact was I was incarcerated for 72 hours. And then once I was released, you know, I came back to my home that I had been living in for three years and I'd been working in a manufacturing plant out on the West side to find out all my belongings had been packed up and the door locks had been changed, you know, no eviction notice. I'd been living there for three years and I was caught up on my rent. There was no reason for them to evict me or to pack my stuff up and change the lock. But this is what they did. And you don't you know, I couldn't find representation of any way, shape or form to uh, come to my aid, you know, on this is which has been acknowledged by not by the court system, but by lawyers who also want a fee, which, you know, once I became homeless, it was amazing on how taxi cabs and eating out and living in a hotel can just sort of make three months salary just disappear within a very short amount of time. And then that's when I officially became you know, homeless where, where you found me, uh, you know, several months ago where I'd been living, you know, in, in the homeless camp and in the homeless community. Luckily, uh, you know, a friend of mine, that I, I love very dearly to this day, 
I, I, I knew that she had been experiencing that lifestyle. And then she, um, you know, she welcomed me into that community, you know, in the best way that she could, you know, it wasn't like, Oh, open arms, come on in. It's like, it's like, like maybe I'll write a book about it someday, but she definitely made sure that I was, <laughs> that I was able to, uh, you know, adjust a lot better than, than a lot of the outsiders that I saw come to that community and have all their stuff stolen the second that they turn their backs. You know, I, I, I was able to, uh, I was able to live there. And, you know, as you've seen uh, within a short period of time, you know, as she said, <laughs> I, I, I tend to do a lot of things well, you know, I was able to, you know, become the voice of the camp, you know, to the point where, and, you know, as the camp was um, disassembling, you know, I was able to lend a, lend an ear and a voice to a lot of the people that um, for one reason or another couldn't speak. Yeah. yeah, boy, that's, you know, the politics surrounding the shutdown of that homeless encampment are rather ridiculous and we should probably do another show on that so definitely yeah i really don't know and i'm sorry i probably should i don't know what you're talking about the jim crow law or what i don't bring me up to speed on the jim crow um because i'm sorry i don't know I'm I'm not very well read and I don't watch the news or I didn't go to school. So there you go. Sorry. Sure. The Jim Crow laws were laws that were enacted after slavery was outlawed in the United States, but they were laws that kept the people of color, you know, in their place. It was um, the laws that, you know, um, separate but equal. Plessy versus Ferguson was based on Jim Crow laws separate bathrooms, separate movie theaters, um, whites sitting in the front of buses, you know, these so were it laws. This, it was the laws to enforce segregation in the United yes. States, basically. Yes. Oh, fuck that. Yes. And then these laws, once they went forward, they were enacted, you know, as the, the history has proven out, you know, as slavery was, if Jim Crow laws were, they were laws, not only to keep a certain segment of, population in check but it was also laws to keep certain part of the population in power now you could be a poor white man but if you were a poor white man who had the whip and sat on the horse you had a position of power no so now we fast forward that to 2020 you know you can be a poor white man or you know a poor black man but if you're not subjected to these laws as Mrs. Alexander wrote in her book, it's called The New Jim Crow. These are what these laws have been manifested themselves into. Now, these laws went back before slavery, as the book, you know, expounds upon, you know, these are laws or these are traditions and these are enactments that were brought in from feudal um, Europe, you know, over into America on how they kept, you know, the, the serfs and the underprivileged and underclass in lines, you know, from hanging people's heads on poles outside of communities to know that, you know, you better not cross us up in this community or this is what can happen to you. You know, you know, as the draconian system evolved and went forward, you know, they had to change, but they're still just as draconian and just as punitive as they ever were then. 
You know, like when you take a person like myself, as we alluded to from an upper middle class lifestyle, you take everything from them and you subject them to a point that, you know, other people feel that they can pick at my carcass because I'm, you know, I'm downtrodden and that nobody is going to answer and nobody is going to stick up for me and nobody is going to say anything. And they feel free, black and white to do this, you know, because they're not going to have any punitive repercussions that are going to suffer from. And, you know, this is a manifestation of those laws. You know, that morphed in from the slavery time into the Jim Crow time into what we have now in 2022. And believe me when I tell you this, we can put an end to this, you know, system here, you know, in Dane County, Wisconsin, where they do it better than anybody else. But it's going to change itself into something else. You know, I mean, just like as it's changed itself, you know, I mean, because the people that are in power aren't just going to give up their power. They're just going to lose a different facet of a way to get it. You know, a way to, you know, mass incarceration. Yeah. Mass incarceration is where they're making their money now. It was it's called their money. Slavery. It's it their money. Road games is where it's coming from. You know, we privatize prisons. You know, you make it profitable to lock somebody up. You know, what I mean, there's a lot of these people like mad. You know, they say they say they're fighting for one thing. You know, it's like Jesus jeepers creepers. You know, why don't we work on treatment instead of incarcerating somebody? You know, mm-hmm. we're going to incarcerate somebody is because we're going to lock them up. When we lock somebody up, you know, at the federal system, they call them million dollar babies. We make the war on drugs, which, you know, I mean, anybody who's, uh, you know, seen that movie with, with, with Eric Clapton, you know, they got pictures of CIA agents on DC 10s working with Manuel Noriega flying drugs into the inner cities of America. And then them ramping up the laws on crack cocaine, where it's twice the time the powder cocaine. You know, it's like, why is that? Where's crack cocaine found? Where's powder cocaine found? You know, they call them million dollar babies because if we lock you down for 10 years, you just made somebody who I'm talking about somebody I'm talking about the powers to be a million dollars. Yeah. We give you a 10 year sentence. Now, when you, you know, like I said, the new Jim Crow, it's all about money. Believe it. You know, and it's what they've done to me here. Like I said, anybody who knows about the disproportionality of the numbers knows that here in Dane County, Wisconsin, here in Oklahoma, we lock up more minorities than anywhere per capita in the United States. And have done it for the last 60 years. Yeah, yeah. Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, one, two per capita for less. I'm sorry, for less 70 years since wow. the 50s per capita, more minorities than anywhere else in the United States. Like I said, this book, The New Jim Crow Man, is dedicated two chapters just to this county alone. Now, you know, I mean, it's not, there's certain aspects like Sun Prairie, Wisconsin, you know, like Monona, you know, where they, the numbers are even more skewed, you know, where the FBI has actually come and, you know, done some surveys and, statistical variances you know about it but you know definitely some prairie it's it's real bad you know i mean sheepers christ man community outside of madison wisconsin didn't have a black officer until five years ago two miles outside of madison not one black officer until five years ago are you kidding me i was born in cleveland and my older sister was born in massachusetts me and my my one younger sister was born in cleveland and we left Cleveland, but here's something. I want to read you something my father wrote. This is from 1983. This is a handwritten letter that he sent to me. I didn't get it till after he died. In the spring of 1970, I finally left the full-time ministry and went to work for the city. My job was to do research on poverty in Baltimore and to embrace programs set up to help poor people in the inner city. We left Cleveland in 1966 because the church fired me and arranged it so I could not get a job anywhere in Ohio. A few powerful people 
had decided I was a communist because I marched in civil rights demonstrations and thought blacks should be full members of the church and because I thought poverty was unchristian. He was forced out of the state of Ohio, our whole family was, and we ended up in West Baltimore. How do you define poverty? I would just call poverty an all-encompassing you know, aspect of a lack of having. The traditional sense, you know, a lack of monetary funds, that's not the only thing that can make you poor. You, know, you can have a lack of morals. You can have a lack of ethics, and you're poor. You're impoverished. You know, and then there's different levels of the economic poverty. You know, a very good friend of mine, uh, Kathy Eisenhower, she runs the largest nonprofit in Orange County, which, which is Los Angeles. She comes from uh, the Appalachian Mountains. She's a graduate of Ohio State and a master's degree from USC. But, uh, you know, she, you know, like I said, she came from the Appalachian Mountains and they told her that she uh, should be a home economics teacher. <laughs> that, that, that's, what, that, that's what she was suited for, the, the aptitude test she took. And like I said, she runs the largest nonprofit in Los Angeles at this time, based in Compton and in Watts. To hear her tell of it, floors were dirt and they lived in a log cabin. And I believe her. You know? So, I mean, when we look at the poverty here in the inner city of Madison, you know, where when my family first came here from, from the South, my parents first graduated from the university. When they first started into the professional careers, we lived in a traditionally black side of town where there was poverty. And, you know, I had friends that had, you know, cockroaches, you know, had their lights turned off. You know, I, you know, I had the, the drugs, drugs and, and abuse was very rampant, you know, in the community. Some of these individuals have stayed in the community, you know, and, and have uh, assumed leadership roles, you know, in the community. You know, the, those ones I will leave unnamed, you know, but the <clears throat> individuals that were born like like our, our da sellout ishmael ozan uh has uh definitely turned his back on the community he's definitely let his bread be buttered on the wrong side of the community you know so i'm gonna say he's poor or he's impoverished you know or he's forgotten where this nigga has come from or as my mother would say this high yellow how would she put it high yellow bourgeoisie house nigga ishmael ozan has forgotten where he's done come from. I know his daddy's white, but this nigga wants to come over to the black barber shops and sit down and pretend like he's one of us when he's part of the system of being poor. Like I said, you can be poor more than just material. You can be poor of mind, poor of spirit. You know, and a lot of these people are definitely vanquished and out to lunch, you know, when it comes to the issues of our time and where we're at, you know, and, and, and and, and and like I said, it's not just a black issue, man. It's not just a white issue. It's a people issue, you know. And and I don't know where these educated, like I said, bourgeoisie niggas is what I'm gonna call them, get this idea or this mindset that bringing everybody up to the top is not gonna help society as a whole. I mean, we're gonna sit there and you're gonna spend whatever kind of money that they spent to lock me down for a year and take everything from me. They're going to think that me adding to the tax base and me helping everybody out isn't going to help more so individually than, you know, trying to lock me up for 10 years and make a million dollars for somebody who doesn't need it. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, you know, the Rupert Murdoch's of the world, you know, how many sailboats can they sail behind or ski behind? You know, I mean, I understand that we have the Warren Buffett's, you know, and the Bill Gates and, you know, and the Zuckerberg's of the world who, who do a lot, you do more than I ever could, you know, but we do have these tyrants out there, 
You know, I mean, these people that, you know, renounce their citizenships and, you know, as I alluded to, live in Australia. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really sickening. It really is. So, yeah, there's a lot of definitions that I have of poverty, you know, and it's not just financial. You know, I, I believe that you can be morally poor, yeah. morally corrupt. You know, I think that's even worse than somebody who's financially poor because a lot of times, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, what is, you know, what is it? The top 1% has 10 times the wealth of the other 99% of the world. It's like, holy shit, man. You know, am I poor or are they? You know, because yeah. last time I checked, man, you're morally corrupt. You know, because last time I checked, hoarding is a disease. <laughs> you know, and what are these guys, man? They're financial hoarders. Yeah. Damn. That's good. That's really good. I'm going to switch it up for a second. If you had two minutes of uninterrupted quality time, with each one of your two daughters, what would you say to them right now? You know, you know, I'd let them know that daddy loves them, you know, first and foremost. And they're definitely the most important things in my life, and I'd give my life up in a second if it meant that theirs could be spared. And I'd let them know that or let them feel that, you know, not that they would understand that, but, you know, if I was to yeah, leave a tape, or something that is definitely something that I would definitely put down first and foremost. And I'd let them know that as their grandmother, you know, even though she was born in the deep South and she had five brothers and only three sisters, you know, her dad let them know you can do anything you want. And I mean, especially being in 2000 and, you know, 22, you know, with, 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 with Miss Harris and everything, hopefully, you know, um, you know, running in three years when grandpa Joe steps down or in seven years or you know, after his next term, you know, you can do anything you want. Woman president, you know, and sorry that Miss Hillary, you know, couldn't achieve the mantle, you know, several years back. But, you know, we got Barack. Uh, you know, I let them know, you know, this is a new time. And this is a new era. This is a new age. And you, they are born at the right time. You know, woman suffrage, you know, you don't need no man to open the door for you. You don't need to take the back seat to anybody, you know, hopefully the whole disparage and pay the, you know, 40, 60, you know, or whatever the numbers are up to now will be, you know, equaled out in their lifetimes. You know, I, I don't know, but I pray, you know, that it will, you know, as, as, you know, my parents knew that, you know, within their lifetimes, the separate but equal, you know, mantra is not going to be achieved, especially considering, you know, in, in some communities like, like in California, where, you know, whites are no longer the majority, you know, we are, achieving the I, I i don't know what it is called on the statue of liberty you know but the the saying bring me your poor you know humbled masses you know and so forth you know or you know this melting pot you know that our forefathers you know even though they couldn't classify everybody as you know a whole human being but you know i believe that some of them you know especially you know the ones like thomas jefferson you know who um you know had you know black mistresses and so forth you know you know believed in their hearts and i'm sure just you know one part of the time you know you know saw you know in their envisionation you know of the united states you know of us being a melting pot you know i'd let them know that i'd you know i'd i would try to pump them up or give them the feeling that my mother gave me you know, when she spoke to me, you know, about, you know, her, them being from the deep South Mississippi, you know, and the Bull Connors, you know, of the time and of the age, you know, and of them having, you know, it being a, a, an honor to get locked up, 
you know, and go to jail or them being able to go to school, you know, them, you know, them receiving scholarships to, you know, to the University of Wisconsin and coming to the North, you know, but them also having German shepherds sicked on them, them having water cannons sicked on them. You know, so when I sit there and tell you about me spending a year in jail, you know, it's kind of like, I kind of sit back. It's like, man, I got it easy. Nobody had a German shepherd try to bite me in the balls. You know, nobody turned a water cannon on me, you know, and nobody, you know, I wasn't, you know, sitting there writing, you know, uh, you know, letters from a Birmingham jail, you know, I, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't doing any of that stuff. You know, I wasn't protesting in Memphis, you know, when uh, James Earl Ray, you know, assassinated uh, Dr. Martin Luther King or, or, or rallying for the garbage truck drivers. You know, I wasn't, you know, I, I don't have to worry about those types of things. You know, and my mother instilled that upon me, you know, that this is a different era and a different age. And that's what I would do with my daughters. Like I said, I let them know, man, that women, you know, I, I'm glad I had girls, you know, my background's in wrestling and in football and a bunch of contact sports, but it made me, I don't know, anybody who has a daughter and changes their daughter's diapers and rocks them to sleep and has them give you that look knows what I'm talking about on this one. It says something to you and changes you deep down inside. And, and, and it brought out, you know, those feelings of me understanding in my heart, not just articulating the words about they can do anything they want. And I believe it in my heart, in my soul. And I'll fight to my dying breath to make sure that, that shit's true. Yeah. There's definitely an element of laying down your life. You know, my, my daughter was having a really hard piece in her life a few years ago. And I was really trying to connect with her on a level where she just wasn't letting anybody in. And I said, flat out, I'll lay down the street right now. If it meant, if it meant that you never had to suffer in your life, I would do it right now with me. You could meet me out there in two minutes. I'd be there. Most definitely. It is a very special experience that I don't know if I can even put words to. So, yeah, how I wouldn't are, do it for a boy, <laughs> but I have two girls that I know of. Oh man, how, how old are your girls now? Um, my 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 baby just turned ten uh, wow. earlier this month, and my um, oldest will be fourteen. And I'm at the beginning part of next month. That's awesome. When was the last time you saw him? So the last time I saw them was uh, before I went homeless in April. You know, I had to keep harkening back to, you know, the, the way that this system is, is structured, but the deleveraging of the individual or the head of the household or taking them out of the household is all just the tip of the iceberg. You know, them leaving mothers as single parents children without fathers is all another part of this aspect of setting up the next generation. You know, it it, it went from, you know, one of my good black friends last night, we were discussing it, you know, my godparents and I had dinner with last night, they've seen this, you know, revolution, you know, or the way that the system is setting this up and it's purposeful. As I said before, it can go back into the feudalism times of Europe and then the laws that they brought over here to keep slaves in their place 
And then the way that the Jim Crow laws were set up, and then the dismantling of the Jim Crow laws, the way that we have what we're going to call now is the mass incarceration system. You know, it is made to perpetrate itself or to progress itself throughout the generations. It's not just something that happens to just one individual, it's something that happens to the whole family. You know, you yeah. know, say so you take out the breadwinner, the head of the household, you affect the children, you affect the children, it affects their generation coming up, and then it just, you know, feeds the system. And yeah. it's done on purpose because it's been proven that it's done on purpose because we can go back to, the, you know, how these laws were established and how they transform themselves and how they go forward. And like I said, here in Dane County, Wisconsin, they do it better than anywhere else. Mm. And it's done on purpose. And I mean, you know, I hate to harken back to it and I hate to sit there and say it, but, you know, even my good white friends, you know, they'll sit there, you know, and be like, oh, how are you saying this? You know, oh, you know, it's not true. You know, and it's really funny because most of them are, you know, like my, my background, you know, most of them have money. It's like, how can you be a money person? You refuse to ignore the numbers. Yeah. We have a statistical oh, variance going on here, man. These are skewed numbers, man. You know, I mean, you, you know, you're what you're, you're like, what you have an MBA and you're a math major, but you refuse to look at, you know, this bell curve. All right. <laughs> you know, these numbers are skewed, but you know. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I look, I know enough about the heroin industry and the, and the LSD industry and the, the crack cocaine industry. Cause I, I dealt in that trade. I worked in that trade for over 10 years. And it is a powerful force aimed directly at the lowest income communities. And it's just fucking out of control still. And now with the fentanyl, like the stupidest motherfucking thing I've ever heard in my life is you last week trying to help out your friends at this temporary hotel housing passing out fentanyl test strips so your neighbors don't die and fentanyl test strips and i don't know what the regulations are today but a couple months ago it was illegal in dane county to possess fentanyl test strips it was considered drug paraphernalia you could be arrested for handing out te- or possessing test strips Just that help back. people live. Right. There's no drug in it. It's the test strip. <laughs> you know, I are you, you fucking know, I, kidding me? I ask myself that same question on a daily basis. It's almost like there's certain members of us that are fighting an uphill battle that other people that act like they're on the right side don't want you to win. It's always like, it's like oh, well, you know, I just leave it alone. They know the shit's killing people, man. And they don't want you to try to save somebody's life. And I mean, people that act that way, I don't have time for because, you know, they're speaking out of both sides of their mouth. They really are. It's it, ridiculous. It, 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 I mean, anybody, anybody who doesn't understand that fentanyl is 50 times more powerful than heroin and more. And then there's this advanced level of fentanyl, carfentanil, that's a hundred times more powerful than that. You know, you just touch your finger to it, you're dead. And then yeah. people are, and then people are shooting this stuff in their arm because it's cheaper than heroin. And we're not allowing the tools to help save people's lives. We're not allowing those tools to make it to the communities and into the hands of people who need it. I mean. You know, well, you know, I'm saying this mass incarceration system is definitely a multi 
pronged animal that, you know, that we're fighting and people that want to make you believe that, that that's not part of it, you know, are bullshitting you. Because I mean, if we kill somebody off, you know, I'm going to get you locked you up forever. And I got to say, before I lock you up forever, I just made a bunch of money for somebody on this other side. Mm. These laws that are unjust and going forward, they're being made for a reason. And, you know, I, like I said, I hate to pick on mad, you know, cause they, a lot of them are hurt. You know, by what, and believe me, and I'm hurt also by what alcohol has done in my life, you know, and drinking and driving have done to people, you know, I, I lost four friends in high school, you know, to a car accident right over there on the West side, you know, and, and, and it hurts, but states like Washington and countries like Holland, you know, that are looking at this from a different aspect where we need to be looking at treatment and not locking people up. You know, I was... You know, spent some time with a guy who was on his like 18th drunk driving. And you know what the first thing he said? If he got out, the first thing he's gonna do is go have a drink. <laughs> you know, this person needs he's sick. You know, these people are sick. These friends of mine over in that camp, insanity is the best way to describe it. The lead or the precursor of this insanity is they are sick individuals. And if you think that locking somebody up who's sick is the right thing to do, you're sick. Yeah. You know, because criminals, you know, you know, we got rapists and we got murderers and we got individuals that need to be locked up. But somebody who's using drugs, you know, I mean, it'd be like, I'm a, I don't know what the word would be, a free market economist, I guess, in my, in my economic theory. But it'd be like us going and locking up all the people that took advantages of those mortgage laws back, you know, in the <laughs> early 2000s, you know, and not going after the mortgage brokers who were sitting there peddling the thing to 20 different brokers. When knowing every time you pick up the phone and you make this call you sub- or, you sub- or you solicit it to one of these people, that's called wire fraud. You pick up a phone and you call somebody in a different state and you give this person their financial information and you try to solicit a loan and, and it's on false pretenses. That's wire fraud. That's a felony. I don't know how many of these overnight fly-by-night mortgage brokers are in jail. You know what I mean? But then I'm saying on that same note, those are the jokers you would go after. I mean, I mean, obviously the Wall Street bankers who package it all together and then peddle it out into the market, you know. I mean, but I mean, obviously, you know, um, Lehman Brothers and, you know, some of those guys paid the ultimate price on that one, you know, but I mean, uh, you know, but like I was saying before, you know, locking up the drug addicts, which they are doing and letting the drug dealers go. It doesn't make any sense. It, it truly doesn't. And then they're making the laws, like I was saying before, you know, like the, the Rockefeller laws, you know, they're on the books to this day. You know what? They've been, you know, changed under the Obama administration. We make crack cocaine. 10 times the penalty of powdered cocaine, you know, and we only, anybody who knows anything about the difference between crack cocaine and powdered cocaine is I've added baking soda to this, you know, at a 30% mixture and that's right. And then water, yeah. turn it into crack cocaine. I mean, yeah. come on now. Yeah. This person deserves 10 times longer in jail. Are you kidding me? But no, no, no. These laws are set up this way and they're set up this way on purpose. And they're, you know, like I said, to deleverage the system in order to make it so that, you know, the family unit, you know, like I said, let me take the head of the household out of the family. Let's see what happens to the rest of the household. You know, cut off the head of the snake. The rest of it's going to die also. You know, this is not rocket science here on this one, man. You know, like I said, you know, like I said, you know these laws, the people that set them up, you know, uh, form them after, 
you know, the Jim Crow laws, you know, which were formed after the slavery laws, the feudal, feudal slavery laws, you know, which were formed after, you know, the things that were using them in, in, in feudal Europe, you know, to keep the serfs and so forth, you know, in check. You know, I mean, it's, hmm. you know, I mean, you know, I'm not a historian, you know, like I said, I got a management degree, you know, I mean, but, you know, I mean, it's just, I don't know. You're going to live that shit every day. Right. It, Fuck. It's, in, it's definitely an interesting process. It's definitely an interesting process that uh, I, I don't remember which one of my professors in college, you know, was, was telling me, like, you know, it's like surprises are the essence to life. But, uh, you know, it's like, shit, <laughs> Chris surprised <laughs> me. I might have a fucking heart attack, man. Bro. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Long story <laughs> short, though, my, 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 the, the conversation would be more than, you know, if I had to squeeze it into two minutes, though, you know, you know, letting my yeah. daughters know, you know, that you can do whatever you want, baby. You know, you're living at the right time, you know, as technologically, you know, women's suffrage wise, color blindness wise, you know, you are living at the right time, you know, in society. I don't know what they call the Roman empires, you know, reign, you know, or the, uh, you know, or the Persians reign, you know, but I mean, you know, those, those, those countries, you know, or dynasties were just you know, not as long as the Chinese reign has been, but, you know, they were, you know, they were quite long, you know, I mean, ours democracy has only been around for, you know, two, 200 and something years, you know, I mean, you're at the right time of the ascension, you know, of this uh, democracy and that, that you can, baby, you can literally, you know, I mean, the, uh, the Christy McCullough's, you know, that was in the eighties, you know, we have women on every space show now. You know, we have black men on every space show. We have a black president. We're going to have a woman president coming up here pretty soon. You know, I mean, you know, we're not as advanced as some, you know, the Margaret Thatcher's of the world, you know, or, you know, the British colonial societies. But, you know, like I said, we're very infantile, you know, in our in our existence. And I, that, 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 that you girls can do whatever it is that you want. And that, um, you know, and that, you know, you know, hopefully daddy will be the old guy standing in the back of the corner crying someday saying, that's my baby out there doing that, you know, and, and, and hopefully some of the things that I, you know, I preach, you know, I try to live in my life, you know, at this day, you know, will come to fruition, you know, in my lifetime, you know, and it won't just be, you know, you know, something that, you know, God rest my parents' soul, something that they told me that, you know, they're not going to live to see, you know, but hope time, hopefully sometime in my lifetime, you know, I, I, I truly believe you know, especially with the advancements in technology, you know, and the advancements of the internet and, you know, the, the, the way that information, you know, surfs around and it is spread around, you know, I mean, I like, I mean, somebody was telling me that the advancements in medical technology, just because of how fast it can be, you know, dissimulated, we've had 10 times the advancement in the last year as we had in the 10 years prior to that. So, you know, I, I, I would think that, you know, this is their time. Women, women, I mean, this is their yeah. time. You know, like I was saying, just in my camp society, just in my campsite alone, like I said, you know, you know, mom was the mayor, you know, you know, Abby, you know, brought me in and, you know, made it so that you know all the other brothers in the community accepted me, even though I came from Lily White Society out on the West side. It was, it was, it was, it was kind of interesting. You know, we were for a while there. You know, it was known that our neck of the neighborhood in Camp City was, you know, the, the new South Side. And that's where you came if you wanted to see what was up. Mm -hmm. You know, and I mean, in, like you were saying before, I was, uh, you know, I was the guy, 
<laughs> you came to talk to. It was, it was quite a de- quite a change, quite a change yeah. from where I came from. Yeah, no kidding. Wow. What are two or three of the things that are within your control that would mess you up the most that you're going to try not to do in your future? Well, I plan on never drinking again. I guess first and foremost, you know, right if on. I pick up, yeah, if I pick up, you know, I, you know, it's all out, it's all out the window. I can't count on anything. You know, I've given, if I give that up, you know, I have given up and, and, you know, that, that that's first and foremost, you know, um, you know, probably probably second, you know, it's how I react to things. You know, I mean, as they say, you know, you know, life is, you know, 90% of what people, you know, do to you, but 10% on how you respond. You know, so that's definitely, you know, controllable on how I respond, you know, to the um, influences or the stimuli, you know, they're placed upon me. So, I mean, those would be like one and two right off the bat, you know, me not picking up and using me not responding in a uh, destructive way. Yeah. No, I'm not going to say negative because I like to protest. And, you know, I like to be the guy to buck the system, especially when I think that, you know, what's going on is wrong. It needs to be changed. You know, but I mean, you know, as far as in, in a destructive way and. You know, as we spoke before, you know, sometimes the outcome of me bucking the system is, you know, the result is other people get hurt. But generally speaking, you know, they deserve it. You know, I mean, and if they deserve it, you know, they didn't seem to care about what they were doing to me. So, you know, for this 150 years of law enforcement experience to lose their pensions as a result of what I'm doing, I do not care. You know, I don't care if it's somebody who ran for governor who loses his livelihood. And, you know, as there's the DA in Durham, North Carolina, spent a day in jail. You know, after that whole um, Duke lacrosse rape trial thing and his BS that he put forward there, you know, I don't care. Mm-hmm. I truly don't. You know, because then you know what you do is wrong. Yeah. You know, so I'm not talking about you know responding in a you know non-destructive way because you know sometimes you know a few legs need to get broken. Mm-hmm. You know, but you know, but like on that same you know you know in a in a non-harmful in a non-destructive way, you know, towards you know um you know trying to do right. You know, I mean, like I said, you know, my mother was definitely a Martin Luther King uh, philosophy, but my dad was Malcolm X. Yeah, <laughs> the fighter. Oh, yeah. So, you know, I mean, but yeah, so like I was saying, yeah, definitely my 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 response being number two and my, my, my you know, not picking up being number one for sure, without a doubt. Cool. All right, Charles. So I would like to get together again because there's a lot of issues that we touched on that I would love to dig deeper into if you're into that. Are you into that? Yes, I am. Most definitely. Well, why don't you just give us parting words and then we'll wrap this thing up. You know, I I would like to, you know, give a shout out, you know, to my, my children, you know, say, Hey, daddy loves you, you know, and and into people, you know, that made this, you know, possible, you know, like I was, like I alluded to, you know, the, the Jessica's, you know, the Abby's, you know, the Renee's, you know, the world mom, you know, a KD, you know, the individuals that took me in and put me under their wing and showed me, you know, that even as an outsider showing up in their world, you know, that I could, you know, that I could fit in, you know, even like I say, being an upper lily bred white clad black man from the West side of Madison, you know, who knew nothing about homelessness. You know, they, they made me feel like, uh, like I belonged, you know, like I belong, you know, all the way to, like I said, the people, you know, that made this definitely possible that made it, you know, so that I, you know, I'm the man that I am today, you know, my mother, my father, because, you know, without them and their 
it takes a village to raise a family philosophy or a village to raise a child philosophy, you know, uh, Mrs. Hillary Clinton, I wouldn't be the man that I am. I wouldn't be willing to put forth the effort that I am to understand that, you know, a rising tide rises, raises all boats. You know, it doesn't leave one behind. It doesn't say, you know, just because you ain't got nothing, we're going to make sure you don't ever have nothing. You know, we don't live in a society that has classes that you can't rise above. Like I said, a lot of my good friends grew up in single parent households and, you know, prescribed or arose to work on Wall Street, you know, own restaurants. You know, um, you know, without those people in my life, you know, who've been there since day one, never wavering. You know, my old wrestling coach, my best friend, Chris, you know, Jake. And like I said, the women in my my life that I, that I will love no matter what, you know, happens. Uh, and, and like I said, my mother, for, first and foremost, I, I, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't have the energy to, uh, you know, to, to do the next right thing. I, I know for a fact I would have just rolled over and, and given up if it wasn't for her uh, hollow words, not hollow words ringing in my ear. You, uh, <laughs> you high yellow, <laughs> oh, you high yellow bourgeoisie nigga. Who the fuck do you think you are and who are you talking to? Those words. And anybody who went to Malcolm Shabazz City High School who happened to be a black male heard them exact words also. Because I wasn't the only one she said that to. I was just the one that she practiced it on on a regular basis. But it was always true. Because if she said that to you, you knew you were fucking up. You better step back in line. Because that little black woman, all 118 pounds of her, did not play. Like I said, though, that's what you get when you come from the deep south, 80 miles north of New Orleans, 80 miles south of Jackson, Mississippi. And then you come into this environment up here in what we call the number one place in America, according to Money Magazine, to live, you know, I'm going to say for who, and I'm going to point you toward this book called The New Jim Crow by Mrs. Alexander. It's just real. We live it every day. Peace out. Awesome. I'm proud to be your friend. I appreciate your time. I look forward to seeing you back here. And I know your mom and dad are looking down on you extremely proud you're a good man charles i do my best well i can do you do it well for everybody else if you can share this if you can leave me a rating if you can support the podcast in any way i'd appreciate that so we can get it out to other people And, and oh yeah i want to throw a shout out to valerie that's a name I couldn't remember. I wonder why she keeps slipping my mind. Probably because she's always the hardest on me. But yeah, definitely Valerie's <laughs> definitely up there too. Right on. Well, thank you, Charles. And thanks everybody else for listening in. And hopefully Charles and I will be back real soon with some more episodes on some valuable conversations. Thank you, brother. Thank you. <laughs>